congregation. Please open your Bibles if you haven't yet. In Psalm 16. <coughs> Psalm 16. A mictum of David. Nobody can tell you what a mictum is for certain. So I'm not going to take time explaining you that. There's so many theories. Nobody can tell you certainly. So let me read for you this mictum of David. And meditate about our portion and deliver. Hear now the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The line have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwell secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shield. Or let your Holy One seek corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's talk to the Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, once more we plead with you, that the words of this servant's mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasant in your sight. O Lord, our rock, our portion, our deliverer and redeemer. In this we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends, as a father that I am, I couldn't help but be moved to tears when I heard about some time ago my fellow PCA pastor who lost his nine-year-old daughter in the nefarious shooting in Nashville. It was a very heartbreaking moment for many of us. I'm sure you heard of it. A nine-year-old being murdered ought to bring a certain sobriety and a particular persuasion to your heart of how fragile our lives are. And there is an episode on Sir... John Witherspoon's life that is pertinent to that reflection. Witherspoon was the president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, in the late 1700s. And he was a notable man, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence of this nation, being the only clergyman to sign that document. And during his tenure, he lived a few miles from the college in the little town of Rocky Hill, and each day he would harness his horse and make his commute to his job. On a given day, however, after completing his daily commute, he was at his study and his doors suddenly burst open. And it was a man, a friend of him, saying, 
Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to the Lord for his manifold provision in my life. The man continued, as I was coming here, my horse got startled and ran away, and all my property was smashed against the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. And Dr. Witherspoon looked at him and replied, not trying to make less of the man's happiness, but adding a certain weight to that reflection with a thought that often passes unnoticed by many of us. He said, I can tell you of a far more remarkable providence than that. For I have driven down the same road hundreds of times, but my horse never ran away, and I never been hurt. And the point here is that for all of us, my friends, we all live a hair's breadth away from dying every day of our lives. And if we gave serious and sober thoughts to this, the opening words of this psalm would be our constant prayer. But what have you been doing? Perhaps you're coping with the reality of death through endless distractions. There are thousands of those in our day and age. Is that your way of coping with this kind of reality, the existence and pervasiveness of death? Uh, let me invite you now to be attentive to what comes from Psalm 16 tonight. As our title suggests, this psalm presents you with a portion and deliverer through whom you may face death with new eyes. And from whom death shall not separate you. This is a psalm of David where he expressed the joy and confidence of belonging to the Lord in life, in death, and even beyond. Dear Christian, it is essential that you would keep uttermost in your mind the goodness of God and His mercy towards His people, not only for this life, but for the life to come. Without this conviction, guilty fears and insecurities will kick in. Your prayers will become mere hoping against hope. And your praise, if still existent, will be far from vibrant. So as we seek to live a life that does not consist, as our book title goes, to an attempt to amuse ourselves to death, but confidently defy its curse upon us, we need a constant awareness and reminders of the extent of divine grace. The Lord will not redeem a people just to leave them along the way. Therefore, although we all struggle through life to do His will even, He guides us, all of us, while granting us eternal security. And this psalm teaches us, again, in one sentence, that God protects, provides, and preserves those who are His. The Lord protects, provides, and preserves those who are his. And these are the three main things that we're going to see tonight. We're going to see first a prayer of protection in verses 1 through 4. Second, a praise for provision. And finally, a pledge of preservation. Let's begin with a prayer for protection in verses 1 through 4. You see, scholars will uh, speculate what was the precise moment in David's life in which he composed his psalm. But um, neither our text nor the remaining of the Bible seems to care much about this. So I will com I'm compelled to tell you that this is not necessary for us. 
for I believe firmly that the revelation that God has given us is sufficient for all its purposes. So we don't know exactly what, what was the occasion in David's life that he composed this psalm. Uh, but the fact is, that David starts this psalm here in verse 1 by praying for protection and declaring that his trust is in the Lord. So as he yearned for protection, he thought it. He went for it in the right place. He seek the Almighty Lord in prayer. So brethren, I need to ask you, just by saying this, in your troubles, whatever they may be, have you learned that the Lord alone is mighty to save you from them? Have you learned that the Lord is even powerful enough not only to save you from them, but even save you through them? God is able to bring abundant good out of evil circumstances. He did that with Joseph, didn't he? A brother being sowed by his siblings, bringing forth the salvation of an entire nation. What about the sacrifice of his son, who be the only truly innocent soul that ever lived, was crushed so that many of his brothers would be then saved as a result of his words, as the words of assurance reminded us. And through that gore event in the cross, he redeemed folks of all nations, tribes, people, tongues, and even set the timer for the consummation of all things. Have you learned to cast your soul upon this God? Have you learned to seek your refuge, asylum, under his wings when you need it? And when is that that you need? My friend, you need his protection 24-7. So stop living, thinking, and going through life as if you didn't. You know what's going to be the result of denying that you need his protection? Anxiety. It is anxiety that will result from your refusal to cast your soul, taking refuge under the wings of the Almighty, who alone can give, can give rest to your restless soul. So in verses 2 and 4 now in our psalm here, David continues and provides reasons for God to answer his petition. He starts off by confessing his faith to the Lord in verse 2. And notice how David uses different names for God here. O Lord, in your Bible you see all capitals, meaning Yahweh, the covenantal name of God. You are my Lord, only the first one capital, Adonai, which is Master. The idea behind this name. So David is here describing his relationship with his God. And he calls him by his covenantal name. Thus showing that there is an intimacy in that relationship. But at the same time, he's also David's master. So it's not a relationship among equals. But King David submits himself to the king of kings. So he could draw comfort from the fact that the potentate of the universe was his refuge. Not only the Lord, but His Lord. And since Yahweh is the all-sufficient one to whom all things belong, if you know, have, and are kept by Him, you have everything that you need. All the treasures of this world can be sought, cannot be sought, understood, and even enjoyed apart from the Lord Himself. Everything is meaningless apart the Lord's blessing. Even your ability to enjoy things in this life 
comes from him. This is the reflection that Solomon gives you in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is kind of what David means when he writes, I have no good apart from you. In other words, Lord, I have no good but you. And everything, everything else is only good in the measure that it is enjoyed through your blessing. Let me then interject one thing that you need to understand now. Mere escape from adversities in life, as we try to run away from them all the time, will never bring true delight to your soul. For what your soul needs is communion with the triune God. Nothing else will do. So therefore, quit chasing the wind. The satisfaction for the thirst in your heart won't come with a pay raise, a new car, a spouse, a job, a house. It will not come by being revered and cheered by fellow men. It will not come with popularity, another kid, more friends, another degree, better looks. Stop looking for fullness in perishable things that are formal. You need to seek God as if you really mean to find him. Until you can say from the bottom of your heart, I have no good apart from you. Or everything that is good in my life is only good, is only good in the measure that I enjoy through your blessing, oh my heavenly Father. Even if this fleeting existence, this life that passes so quickly was everything that was, it would still be worth living this short life in genuine fellowship with this God. That's how good He is. Let alone with the prospect of eternity with Him in heaven. As he mentioned eternity, the thought and prospect of heaven must have gone through your mind. So I ask, what are you eager to see there? Perhaps a lost child, a beloved spouse, a dear relative. And some of you may already know, I can certainly empathize with that lost child idea and feeling. But brethren... If we leave this place with the resolution to confess with David that we have no good apart from the Lord, it is God that we have to anticipate meeting in heaven. And the point is not that we shouldn't love these people that we missed and that I mentioned as examples, but the very blessing of love and enjoyment of anything or anyone comes from God who Himself is the ultimate good and ought to be, therefore, the utmost desire of your soul. And this is what will happen to Christians. We will see the face of God himself in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the exact image of his Father, and who, by the way, prayed, Oh, Father, may they be with me so that they may behold the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. John 17, 24. Having confessed his faith, David then declares his loyalty to the Lord in verse 3 and 4. And the way David did it is noteworthy. Notice that he, in, a, in other words, delights in the saints, but departs from the wicked. It is natural, after all, to delight in those who share our ultimate commitments in life, isn't it? Do you remember 
C.S. Lewis' description of when a friend is born is particularly when you think that you are alone in the world is with regards to an aspect of your life or an interest that you think nobody else shares. And you suddenly find a like-minded soul and you look at that person and say, I can't believe it. You too? That's how a, a friend is born. So David uses here his hyperbolic term, in the saints is all my delight. You say that in the people of God is my chief delight. Why? Because in all the people of God, you can look at them and say, you too, you too have this God as your utmost hope and desire of your soul. See what Matthew Henry says about the love of the brethren and them being our chief delight. If God be ours, we must, for God's sake, extend our goodness to those that are his. For what is done to them, God is pleased to take it as done to himself having constituted his people as his receivers. Remember Matthew 25, when Jesus would say uh, that giving or denying food, clothing or water to any of his little saints, little children, it is, it is as if we were denying things to him. This is how close the God's people union to Christ is. There's no such a thing as a churchless Christ. Jesus comes with his people, if you will. With those who are united to him by faith. You can't love him and hate the brethren, man. Notice how Paul takes his brotherly love for granted. When in passing, taking for granted really, he writes Colossians 1.4. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. There's even a hymn with that title. So the two go together. Faith in Jesus breeds love for his people. So if you are united to Jesus. There is no space for you to despise. His people. In spite of who they may be. Also notice that. When Paul wrote Colossians 1. He had already written 1 Corinthians. So he wasn't speaking as a young and uh, naive minister. He had dealt with trouble in the church. Serious issues. You very clearly know what troublemakers Christians can be. And I got this illustration with uh, Ralph Davis um, that I think is quite pertinent here. Uh, it is kind of like your love with your children. Not the way your kids come to church in their best shape, all cleaned up and nice and pretty in their best behavior. But um, at the house, especially between the ages of 3 to 11, there's always... Teeth missing, runny noses, sauces all over their clothes, and hair. And you wonder who in the world can love this little, and I learned from him this expression, grubby little hedgehogs. <laughs> and upon a, a, a second thought, when you think about these things, wait a minute, I love them. I love these kiddos. Why is that? Because they're yours. Isn't it? And why do you love God's people? Because they're His. And you love Him, don't you? Is that your view of this assembly tonight? Is that how you see your brethren? And David continues and resolves to depart from the wicked. Those who run after other gods. But not only those. Also, those who worship the true God falsely. 
See how he associates false worship here by putting together drink offerings with blood. Although blood was central to the worship of the Old Testament and drink offerings were, blood consumption, therefore, was ultimately prohibited. Notice then how idolatry can mean not only worshiping another god, but worshiping even the true god falsely, incorrectly. And by that, he means in a way that he had not ordained us to worship him. David is so resolved to depart from these wicked people that he will not even utter their names nor their gods. So see how your soul, Christian, must vehemently renounce the way of idols. Dear friends, also notice how your human relationships reflect your relationship with God. Let me ask you husbands and wives now, how would you feel if your spouse had a close friend that was always encouraging him, inviting him to cheat on you. Would you feel great about that friend? I don't think so. I wouldn't. So why in the world would you develop a close and deep friendship with those who hate the beloved of your soul and are constantly trying to get you to cheat on him by sinning against his glory and honor? Yes, we need to live in peace with everyone as far as depends upon us. Yes, we have to have compassion for the lost, as we heard this morning, and even be active witnesses for Christ in their lives. But I'm talking about that closeness of friendship that you should have only with those who are made one with you and share all things in common, Acts 2.44. Brethren, trust the Lord alone. Love him above everything else. For there is no goodness apart from him, as we read here. And as you do so, you will be driven by his spirit to delight in his saints and depart from the wicked. Prayer for protection. And as you pray in such terms, you will find yourself praising God for his provision. And that is the second thing that we see here in this text. A praise for provision. Verses 5 through 8. So to begin with here in verses 5 and 6, you see David praising the Lord for the Lord being his possession, his source of provision, and the custodian of his destiny. And he does so by using a couple of images. The first one describes the Lord as his portion. And that refers immediately to the piece of land that each Israelite inherited when they took over the promised land at the command of Joshua. In those days... The land was divided and every tribe received its portion. But the Levites, the priests, they did not receive a piece of land. For according to Numbers 18, their portion was to be the Lord himself. But if you think about that, the more you know the Old Testament, you remember in Exodus 19, there was something that was said about the nation of Israel, that they were meant to be a kingdom of priests. So what is true for the Levites point to what is true spiritually for them as a type of what is true for us now in the new covenant and david was conscious about that and rejoices in that reality so david recognizes that the lord is therefore the ultimate provider and if you have the provider himself as your portion will you lack anything therefore he praises god for his provision. The second image that we have here in those verses is that of the cup 
which in the Bible, especially in the Psalter, stand, usually stands for one's final destiny. You see, for the wicked, it refers to judgment as a cup of fire and brimstone. As you see, for example, in Psalm 11, verse 6. For the righteous, though, it is overflowings of blessings. Psalm 23 that we mentioned this morning, especially verse 5. And you see, David's confidence is based on the conviction that the Lord is the one who maintains or upholds his lot. Verse 5. David here unashamedly confesses the Lord's exhaustive control over all things and rejoices in that control. And here is an indication for you as to why theology matters. You see how doctrines are meant to produce praise in your heart. See how David's knowledge of the doctrine of divine sovereignty over all spheres of life caused him not to want to win a debate in a social media, but to praise the Lord. That is what doctrine is supposed to produce in the Christian worship. Then in verse 6, still using the imagery of land division, David says in the psalm, the lines have fallen in pleasant places to me. Namely, the lot that he got is actually superb. It's the best of all. He has the Lord himself as his portion. So he cannot fail but recognize that he came to possess what really matters and says, yes, I have a good inheritance. Maybe you fail to realize, but if you have the Lord as your portion today, you cannot be robbed of the joy and delight. For he himself is the source of all good things. May your desire, brethren, be not uh, for more than God, but for more of God in your life. For he is all sufficient and all satisfying portion. And in verse 7 then, another session here in the psalm, David wrote that the Lord gives counsel and instructs his servants heart and mind in the night season. You see, the only reason David could understand and see that the Lord was his portion was because God had revealed himself to David and instructed him by his word. Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his way. And once a person is born again, worship and prayer becomes the spiritual newborn's cry as he comes to this world, spiritually speaking. And even it is the oxygen that keeps him living. Psalm 116, 12, what can I render to the Lord for all he has done for me? I will take the cup of my salvation and call upon the Lord's name. What can you render to the Lord that during the night when disturbing affections try to rob the, the focus of your heart and your rest, cause you to lie down like sheep and peace in sleep, in pieces go to sleep. For he is the Lord who makes you dwell safely. Psalm 4, 8. My friends, it has been my experience that simple men on their knees and with their eyes shut can see more clearly than worldly wise men at noon with their eyes wide open. Personal communion with God is a glorious benefit that is reserved for those who know the Lord as their portion. 
is this seeking? Is seeking communion with God a pattern in your life? I must tell you now, if you're not seeking communion with him actively, he may not be your portion. Therefore, be resolved, even tonight, to contemplate him constantly in his word and among his people in his public ordinances. Only then, as verse 8 goes, by setting the Lord always before you, having him at your right hand, you will not be moved. You will not be shaken. Again, that doesn't mean affliction-free life, but it does mean security and safety amid grievous, intense distress. And what does that security entail? It entails even physical preservation in face of death, which leads us to our last point for tonight. Prayer for protection, praise for provision, and finally, a pledge of preservation, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the realm of dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. See, the hope is that the flesh, the physical being, will dwell securely. You see, David manifested the same confidence as other eminent Saint of the Old Testament, even Job had. You see what he says in Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see the Lord with my eyes and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. You see, this passage is the perfect segue for you to see in bright colors the pledge of preservation upon the saints that is granted to all God's people through his anointed one. You see, David and Job were talking about the hope of the resurrection. And fellow Christians, remember that God established a covenant with David that involved his descendant in 2 Samuel 7. And one, on one level, that descendant was Solomon indeed, but one another, as we saw this morning, it was David's son and David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in him that these words of the psalm are fulfilled. And though, you see, Paul will use the same verses, the same argument here of Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 13. Let me read for you a portion of Peter's Pentecostal sermon, if you will, in Acts 2. Uh, in 20, verses 29 through 33, for he will apply these same verses here to Christ in a way that I think the reading will benefit us all. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body according to the flesh... He would raise up who? The Christ, his anointed, to sit on his throne. David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That Christ's soul was not left in Hades, nor did Christ's flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which you are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, He poured out this 
which you now see and hear. Can you see and hear this anew and afresh? As I prepare this sermon, that was my prayer. That the Spirit would cause you to see anew. Can you hear Christ himself pleading with your soul through this psalm? And in particular, showing you that his resurrection was never a plan B. And to resurrect Christians, they needed to die and die for you. God himself had torn a body and a soul just to die. Just to experience that violent separation that is death. Violent separation between body and soul. He's so committed to the good of the sheep of his pasture that he will even shed his own blood to maintain their loss. And he did it, endured it, but he lives. He's risen. And because he lives, as the song goes, you can face tomorrow. For not even death can separate you from him. He has given you the resurrection of his only begotten son as the pledge of your preservation, Christian. And all of those united to the resurrected Christ by faith have the Spirit of God in them that not only reveals this truth to them, but even mortify their sinful natures and vivifies, namely gives life to them by forming Christ himself in them. Galatians 4.19 If the Spirit was forming Christ in David here, who only looked to the promises from afar in expectancy, how much more do you have, having received the Spirit in your heart, and now can, you can even look back to the cross. Feed even upon Christ himself in the sacrament of communion. You see, note further how Psalm 16 is entirely fitting to the lips of Christ while on earth. He had his father as his only portion. And Christ's food was to do his father's will. He loved the saints of God to the end. He drew wisdom from God's word. And at the age of 12, he was already showing that to the world. He was in the constant habit of prayerful communion with his father. And when he saw and tasted death itself, he trusted his father's care so entirely that he could say at this very last moment, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. And seeing the Savior's conviction, even in his last moments, should cause your heart to burn with confidence and encouragement. You see, since the Father sustained His Son through the same Spirit that now lives in you, will He fail you at any time in your life, even in death? Most assuredly, no. And in light of all of this, let me revisit what I said at the beginning. And as people living a hair's breadth away from death, how should you face it? If Christ is yours, you should do so boldly. After all, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is he who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, he is also risen. And at the right hand of God. And if that's you, verse 11 now can be yours. And what a great last line for a Christian to say, this side of the glory, only a true child of God can face death with these words in his mouth and heart. 
you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, what a hope we have in Christ. What a prize we have as a result of his work. Let us glory in his resurrection. Let us hope in it. Let us, therefore, Lord, have a faith that is unshakable given the uncertainties of this life, this side of glory, because we are sure about what awaits us. And, Lord, may this give us a peace and a joy that surpasses understanding and that the world cannot understand, for the world does not have. Oh, Lord, give us more of you so that we may delight in the lot and portion that we have, and that is you, Lord, you yourself that came upon us by the Spirit through the Son. And, Father, you live in us. Oh, Lord, what a blessing we have to be your people. Seal us, and, Lord, even bless us in the remaining of this worship service to your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.